Hey there, hobbyist headman. Welcome to Bubbling Up, an adult conversation on the wide world of comics. I'm just your trigger man doing one last job, Joe Soria, along with the man with all the gold retirement watches, Steve Ermosi. Chilling and killing. <laughs> Put on that gold. On today's breakdown, we will be digging into some neo-noir, Write It in Blood, the first and only volume as of right now, 2021. And as we've spoken ad nauseum throughout, if you give us something that's noir, we'll probably read it. We've talked to Baker. I have plenty other comps here. We can talk Coen Brothers. We can talk Parker. We can talk actual film noir versus noir noir. I record Noir Alley on TMC on Saturday nights, so I can watch some French Noir. Give me some Jean-Pierre Melville. Steve, you want to name some Noir so we can feel like we all get Noir? You got all this stuff over there. It's like, you know, what what am I going back to? uh, Like Maltese Falcon over here? uh... Yeah, you're Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. (laughs) You got to do a little C. See, and, uh, you know, this is more of the uh, the Western, I would say, noir. It's got, a, it's got kind of a cowboy noir feel to it, this one. Yeah, this is, well, we'll discuss it, but I mean, it is in Texas, rural Texas. What other noir that won the best picture in the last decade takes place in rural Texas and is about a hitman, multiple hitmen? Uh, so, uh, no Country for Old Men? No Country for Old Men, and then every Quebec McCarthy novel. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> um, So... Sound like we gave out our bona fides already. Anything else you want to touch on before we take a quick break and, and get into it, Steve? Now let's talk noir, man. Let's dig in. Let's get dark. Let's get let's get dark. So we'll be right back to talk uh, Write It In Blood. All right, and we're back. We're going to do, like I said, Write It In Blood, volume one. So it's publisher's image every week. Author Rory McConville. Not familiar with his work previously. Joe Palmer, same. Looks like they did both work on Judge Dredd and 2000 AD at some point. Um, not very familiar, both from the UK and Ireland, respectively. So it's interesting. We've got the we've got colors of Chris O'Halloran, who I immediately recognize from Ice Cream Man, which is my one of my favorite colored books and a one of my image always is as I call it. Letters by Hassan Atsmane Elhau, and then I have cover by Declan Shalvey. So official synopsis from the image website. And I think we mentioned it on one of the other episodes, but I believe because this is an image, you might be able to get the first issue for free if you go directly on their website. Uh, if you are listening to this for some reason and, and haven't read it already, it is only four issues. It's very quick. But on the eve of their retirement, two hitmen, Cosmo and Arthur Price, drive through the Texas countryside with the infamous Little Harkness in the trunk of their car. The brothers are meant to deliver Harkness to their boss, but matters become complicated when Arthur's recklessness jeopardizes Cosmo's retirement plans and puts a target on their backs. That sounds like a setup of sorts that we, we've heard before. Yes or no, Steve-O? Well, yeah, it is a very uh, standard like crime story setup, I suppose. But also, I feel like this tells like the entire story. It's, it's weird that they talk about the little Harkness already being in the trunk in the synopsis of this i feel like it happens in the first five pages like so, first, i mean yeah but you don't know like what he is to them in the beginning it's like revealed throughout i feel like okay i think it's pretty obvious once they cut right to the other the layer of the other other folks i guess yeah. in essence but yeah i think the difference and it's not a crazy difference i feel like the brothers have happened before you could think the vega brothers of we didn't say tarantino in our eras but the vega brothers they never worked together 
Uh, you've got the the Pulp Fiction connection. You've got the two brothers that uh, are non arms of like a like even a Big Lebowski on the silly side. From Dust Till Dawn. Dust Till Dawn, the brothers. The Tarantino yeah. is one of the brothers. In there. <laughs> yeah. This is trodden territory. But what were your first impressions here? Like you just said, you talked about your opinion on the synopsis. And, you know, I have a breakdown of the early part of the comic as basically my first impression. So before I do that, what did you think right when you when you got into this, Mr. Stevo? Yeah, I mean, my initial impression was it's a fun, like, crime book. It's very, it feels very Tarantino-esque to me, like right out of the gate. It's just like this too clever by half dialogue that is always fun to me, even though it seems like it's, the characters are just like way too clever for their own good. Always they're like, they have these little conversations about something like pointless while something like important is happening, like somebody's getting murdered, you know, just those little juxtapositions. And this book, does it right out of the gate and, and does a fairly good job with it. It is a page turner. It's not like, I don't know if it's going to be particularly memorable, but it's a page turner. It was a fun, quick read, like you like you said. So that was my initial thoughts as I as I went through it. I would say not a classic and not dense. So it's it's breezy in the realm of, of this type of book. If you were talking about a comic book that would be on the, the shelf for a pullout at the airport that is a noir, the other connection that I feel I saw other places, I don't want to fully steal, but I did just read a novel. that's like almost a very similar story by Elmore Leonard. That would be even more. <laughs> and when you say Elmore Leonard, you go Tarantino yeah. ripping off or taking Elmore Leonard in, you know, Jackie Brown. Leonard literally actually did a Elmore Leonard yeah, book, book, run punch. So <laughs> I think I forgot the name of the, the book I wrote. Cause I think that's why we're having problems with the right in the blood is a good title, but all these books, a lot of times it's always blood. It's hard to remember which one's which. And if you read a lot of them, they're all the same. You're doing it for the vibe. Like just people read mysteries, people read romance novels. You don't remember the names of these novels. And I think right. that that's what this fits into, you know, dime store, pulpy, pulpy something. Is there elevation here? I guess we'll get into that overall. Is there any something that's elevated and memorable? I'm not sure. But I will give my other initial impressions just from this this first page. And this kind of builds on what you're saying. So the first page in the book, you get this outside of the house, standard setting, rural Texas, second shot, two dead bodies, third shot, dead body on the ground. And then you have the first line of dialogue off shot. I don't know if you saw off panel, whatever yeah. wording you want to do, <laughs> off panel, right? And it says... Do you think he's going to get us a retirement present? Which I is a callback to my gold watch that Steve-O always is uh, carrying around with him because he's very retired at this point. But, <laughs> well, we could talk about that's a different podcast with your psychiatrist, you know, so post-show. But yeah, so you have right away them kind of doing, you can tell something's happened. There's been some kind of murder brutality, but we're talking about retiring. We're talking about afterwards, they're not focused on it. It's just the job, right? And it, it all gets done in that one page, one shot. And yeah, if you know this type of story, this makes sense, but it's still, it's still a great hook, if nothing else. That's what these books do perfectly. If you read a noir or like an Elmore Leonard or a Carl Hyacin or something like that, you know, a Parker novel, you get into the story right away. You get a feel for what's going to be a little bit different here right away. You're going to get a little bit of dialogue and some kind of kookiness. And that'll hook you. And then you get something about these characters. You don't see them. You don't get their names yet. 
you just get, you already understand them and where their head's at before you even see them. So draw me in media res, right? Right in the yep. middle of this, right here. That's the perfect noir variant. That, that makes it not McCarthy. And McCarthy is not funny, but he's a lot of times Texas and Plains. And then like Cohen Brothers, they can do funny or they can do serious and they can do somewhere in between. But I don't think this is a no country for old men level of quality or humor. It's a dash of all of these things. And then we'll get into the, again, the execution where, where we can rate it on its tier. So yeah, either way, we get this from this moment, we get this idea that it's the final mission of some sort, or they're going to, you know, get us a retirement present, meaning obviously we're right there. And then we finally, we get to see the brothers next shot. They're kind of just hanging out by the car. They're carrying a Harkness out there basically. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think it's a spoiler that if it's on the first page, you see the characters, they're carrying a body, maybe like who it is a little bit is a spoiler of some sort in the synopsis, but I think that's okay. So you have, you get the feeling from their discussion, like this question's coming from uh, Arthur Cosmo, right? There's Cosmo and Arthur Price. So Cosmo is kind of this like chatty one that is kind of wor- a worry ward and has a little more, he has, he has a lot of, interests, I guess, or he like throughout the book, he's looking, he wants to buy a house. He's looking to buy a house. And he has a lot of questions about should they get gifts for them and, and what's going to happen. And then the other brother is just like arms crossed, like kind of cranky <laughs> widow's peak, you know, like got scars on his face and versus like the young one with the hair and the mustache, but they're both retiring. So, you know, you have that. And then you get your final like closer of this. And just to sink in that information, there is a line where they, they, then they say they missed one and he walks over and he gives him that kind of like, oh, it's your lucky day, man. We're going to let you go. You just got to take it calm, take it easy. And then uh, Cosmo comes through, not Cosmo, uh, Arthur, Arthur and just shoots him in the head, you know, blam. Right. And, you, you know, and then you ask, why'd you do that? And he says, mercy killing. It's better to better bleeding out than listening to you ramble. So, uh Brothers, cranky, end of job, three to five pages, everything stage set, Harkness and trunk. We've got to deliver it. Let's go. Doesn't get much better than that when it comes to, I think, a first impression. So I think that's why at that point, I'm pretty sure I texted you and I'm like, all right, we're going to do right in blood volume <laughs> one for next week. So I didn't I didn't read this all the way through before we, we did all of it. But I thought on that alone meant we both would enjoy this or at least that would be enough of a, a move. So I have a lot more on the stories and everything else. But yeah, then we kind of lead into 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 diner town. So I mean, you know, very Tarantino. Very Tarantino. There's at least what three diner scenes. There's a there's a waitress who is also like an informer of what's yeah. going on. And I didn't know what to do with diners, but cool. <laughs> but like it's like everything is important that happens at a diner. That's not just very Tarantino. That's Reservoir Dogs. That's Pulp Fiction key scenes. That's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But they're definitely eating a lot in restaurants that are dingy. So we'll say not diner, but restaurant. There's always coffee. There's always coffee and thoughts. And there's a discussion. There's even that discussion where I think the boss goes, it's later on, but where the waitress insisted he has to buy something. He's like, if I knew we had to buy something, I wouldn't have come to this diner or something. Like, that's a perfect, like the tipping conversation with Steve Buscemi in the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. That's our callback. She so want me to keep going here in the story? I know you kind of said you didn't have a ton to, to set everything. So I wanted to run down the story anyway, but what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that that's how it starts. You know, you get into the Harknesses a little bit who are just kind of like a rival family who... I guess they used to be allies and now something has happened. I was kind of unclear what the hell happened with Little, the guy who's been taken hostage and why he's been taken hostage and what, like, if it was really explained what the 
break there was or if they were just rivals or whatever. But I think it's we're enemies, territories, that's it. You know, yeah. um, not, not no need to explain it. The brothers are just kind of caught in the middle. They you find out that Arthur has wronged the Baron by banging his wife. The Baron being being their boss. I don't even the Baron being their boss. Yes. Yes. So now they're in the middle of these two of of their boss, the Baron and his gang, and the Harknesses trying to get back their family member, Little. And uh, yeah, and it kind of comes to a head as you would expect in a in a uh, story like this. Have you ever seen a story like this where uh, where there's a whole issue with tucking the uh, main character's wife? That would be like Uma Thurman of some of some ilk, or potentially doing that and going yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> that's not, you, you remember that one either? <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, we're doing beats and plot points. I like Pulp Fiction, so you know that's yeah. not a problem. But but I mean, uh, so like that's kind of the story. It's just these two brothers in the middle of. Uh, a world of shit coming down upon them and the, and them trying to figure it out or, or not even really trying to figure it out that hard, especially not Arthur. Doesn't really seem to give a damn. He's just upset that his brother is like excited for retirement and doesn't want to go off into the, into the sunset, I guess. There's high pace here. It's in like, and it's in, I wrote it down here, but it's in a Vela style, right? We're saying these like, it's oh, yeah. slow, but everything here. You know, it's chatty and kind of cute, you know, like cute talk or whatever you want to say. It's not like hard. Bo- it's not hard boiled chatter. Most of it here. It's kind of silly talk and yeah. then hard boiled on the outside. Clever noir. Clever right? noir. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely true. And then we have a gas station scene. I don't know if there's any gas station scenes, any Coen Brothers movies that people are familiar with, but <laughs> there's always like a gas station scene in every fracking hitman movie or like road movie with a kidnappy that they have to go stop somewhere and something bad happens. You know, it's, it's so tropey that it's like, it's like dripping with trope. And of uh-huh. course, Zoolander, as you all remember, the noir spectacle. So we, we have that and, that, and that is when the, I, I guess you call, I don't know if that'd be the inciting incident. I think it is, depending on how you do your, your writing style. But this is when we actually find out about the, the, cuck, the cucking because a young boy just, basically runs up to them, finds them at this gas station and tries to shoot them. The Baron's employees and they like throw, they throw a fire hydrant at them or something <laughs> like ridiculous. I think that's what happens. <laughs> so that's when we get revealed about the the wife um, who I don't think the wife even has a name. So, you know, it's the Baron's wife. Pretty sure if I, I look twice and, and there is nothing. So this Riley character who does get a name because he's in one scene, takes it upon himself to try to kill them. Then we have this like kind of silly guy working at the gas station, you know, the kid who works at the ice cream stand, same scenario, you know, if he was wearing the little hat. And at this point, it turns the other way where Cosmo becomes the angry one and Arthur becomes the defensive equivocator because now he has kind of fucked everything up, you know, and I think that's that's the twist that happens here. And that leads to, I think that, you know, then you get these introductions. So you have that little break there of Harkness family, you've got this. And then you meet the Baron. So you're meeting all your characters, but we're pretty much going to be wrapped up in about 70 pages of, of, of comics. So they lay out a lot here. And we were talking on some of the other ones about, you know, multiple characters and layouts. I think this one benefited from doing it. They kind of introduce people in pairs, really, is what happens. And so you get to meet the people in their context with that one person. And then they don't get put together ever, really. They have their separate rooms and they kind of have a little interaction but they don't have direct interaction until basically the, the denouement of the entire story. 
so that you get to recognize and recognize all the characters throughout, besides all the trope part and it's easier and the names and, but they don't oversay people's names either. I did have to go through, I wrote all the names down here, but I would say they mentioned everyone's name except for the Baron, like once or twice, basically, even all the, the you know, the associates. So you know, definitely, definitely good. And then this leads to, I think, what is my favorite scene and is the Baron reading the letter that Cosmo writes to apologize for Arthur and how at the end of it, it's a long letter. And in the background, you see a picture of the Baron hunting in Africa, like a whiskey glass and like the little snippets of the handwriting. And then it says, with a little bit of common sense, I believe we could find a way to put this behind us. And you're like, okay, well, you know what's going to happen here. Not that. So, And then I think from there, a lot of the other stuff is the rest of the story, to be honest to me, becomes a little bit of a mishmashy. But I really, even though all these pieces have already been there before, I still think Mr. Rory McConville took all the right pieces here, set up something you can care about and something you want to see how it concludes. And it's not obvious 100% how it's going to include. So I don't know how much better you could do when it comes to a four-issue noir, you know, novella arc. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that it's definitely an economic use of the space that they had. Like I said, it's an enjoyable read. It's not going to be like, I don't think, up on the top of any like Eisner list or anything like that. But it's a fun, little, quick book. And it's definitely a page turner. I, I enjoyed it. So you have, let's go into the art. I mean, what do you think? What did you think of that at least? Like, I was just, yeah, I was just going to mention, uh, it's kind of the same. I feel like the art works, but it's never, it never like reached out and grabbed me, you know? Actually, I, I probably prefer like the, the dialogue and, and the script to the, to the art a bit, but very standard panel layout. There wasn't anything super artistic in, in terms of that. Nothing crazy. The art kind of similar it's just it was just kind of there to do its job and stay out of the way of the of the dialogue and, and stuff like that and i think it i think it worked just fine i actually did quite like the the minimalistic cover designs that they had i thought those were really solid like the black and gold basically the black and two-tony there's a little bit of actual color but it's mostly a lot kind of, of silhouette yeah yeah and those were cool and other than that you know it's it's good i mean it's a professional comic you know like <laughs> Nothing to write home about, but uh, it does it does its job and, and uh, it keeps me turning the pages and enjoying it. I want to say a little bit, I want to give it a little bit more of a defense than that because I think it was pretty standard and I think the layout is, is to fit in with the trope. But I do think there was actually some good usage of how they showcase things like we discussed even on that first page where you could put it where the hitman is just saying that, right? But instead you have the body and you have it off screen. There's a lot of good use and mix up of long and short, I think. And it's not always like long in the beginning, then zoom in. It kind of, it's not a huge changeover, but it in this book, it's a professional plus. It's not lazy, I would say. No, uh, no. So yeah, so that's what I, I would give it that credit. The other thing on the character design, it just screamed to me, King of the Hill. It really did. Like it, it kind of looks, you know, like sharper, dark King of the Hill. So that's an art style that people like, you know, like a Mike Judgy type style. The brothers look a little bit like the teacher from, I don't know, the face, the teacher from like yeah. Butthead or something. There's <laughs> just uh, definitely evoked that. And it's not a negative and it's not like bad. It's not crazy. But I feel like we've said this with a lot of the noir people like Phillips and even with like Good Asian. Some of those are better on the layout designs, but the actual character art generally to me is... um to get the ball going, you know, there isn't 
Nothing stands out. There's no one here that stands out necessarily, but they are all delineated at least. You know, that's okay with me. So yeah, I agree with you there. It actually led me into what I put into my execution, which I don't know if you've read when we've discussed stray bullets. I had read a couple of them, but David Lapham, he does, I, I think it's with his wife, but he, it's kind of these type of stories, kind of a true romance style, but it's a black and white version. So the style and everything here and the, the covers, I think evoked that style for me. It was a popular, I think, I don't know if it's, if it ended up getting released by a bigger publisher, but I think it was like not a big publisher to start. So that's the mm-hmm. Stray Bullets vibe definitely came with me. I had a note here on that, those covers as well. I had a note here for the gas station again. So yeah, I mean, I don't think there's a ton more to touch on here when it comes to the art, even on the execution. I had, you know, a note on my little, on my little gas station clerk boy. <laughs> and I found that scene funny to be the opposite of a Shigur scene where it's like a flip, flip a quarter. And instead he's like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to ask my boss for a raise to 775. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there isn't the brutality there. There isn't some kind of new, like new modern crime being created here or like a new template or, you know, a Pulitzer Prize being handed out. It is good where it is. And uh, I enjoyed it. Honestly, that's most of the stuff I wanted to cover. I mean, the ending, when I get into final thoughts here, I will have to say, you know, then I will start. I think it failed on the landing. And that's where I kind of got let off. And it, it did it almost an off-screen ending, which kind of sucked. And then it was conf- even more confusing because there's like a mention of another family that they don't even say who the family is. But that's kind of what happens is like someone dies. Another one of the brothers is still alive. And somebody fills the vacuum, but he's yeah. out. And that's pretty much it. And so it, it kind of peters out, which as it almost, I think we've discussed this before. It's like, do they run out of pages? No more plot. We just, we're tired. We're going to ending or it is more of um, a modernist ending where it's not a real ending. Like not everything can be, you know, it's a postscript, I guess, but not every postscript could be like a breakthrough. It's more like someone has settled into normal life. Still, this is where a Carantino, Leonard uh, Cohen's Excel, they finish the story with a flourish that might be expected, but still is performed to an exactitude. So I would almost prefer this to have ended like out in the desert and not tack that postscript on there. Even if it was like you weren't sure what happened to these characters afterwards, I think I would have preferred that as an ending to like this like little just house visit that someone you haven't met before is paying to Cosmo. And it's like, okay, the world's moved on. And I guess that's the point of it, right? But like, is it necessary? Everybody's dead and he has, and he got his house. You know, that's pretty much the ending. Yeah, uh, it still seems not clean and not, doesn't have to be fulfilling, but it, it should at least be, you know, valuable when it comes to landing the plane. And yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't do that. Yeah, I mean, I, you could have put on a, a better ending. Like you're mentioning these other creators who might've done a better job of, you know, adding something at the end here. And, and sure, that there, there are probably a hundred ways of, doing this ending differently or whatever, that could have been fine. But I, I honestly, I, I think it would have been fine if they just didn't do that whole epilogue section at all. But I will say, as kind of a final thought here, I did have a good time with it. Like I said, as a page turner, it was a quick read. And, you know, there's something to be said for like a short, like self-contained story. I feel like I don't think there's going to be more of this. You know, I think this is just kind of a one-shot, solid dialogue, good quick pacing, you know, throughout. And yeah, I'd, I'd suggest it to other people to read. I had a good time with it. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, pr- a proof of concept, I'm sure. Like to say, like, we could do this. We could do a shorty. 
Or we could do, you know, we just mentioned Brubaker and Phillips, but I mean, they're basically just making one of these every three times a year. It's insane. Three times a year, they're doing the same thing. So, I mean, if they want to do another Texas story or whatever, try to build it out, I'm sure it's not, the writing is definitely excellent, you know, good enough that it could carry it. It's more the demand side, I think. So it's probably what it comes down to. Like, did we get some demand for this? We got a cool title. Is that enough? We got a good hook in the beginning. Is that enough? And I think it gets about, you know, 80% of the way there. It ends up in, in a B because of the ending instead of an A, you know, because in my world, just because this is kind of my specialty. So uh, I'm comparing it against a lot. If you've never, for some reason, read or watched any of the things we're referring to, this might be a total shock to you. But I, I <laughs> guess not many people would pick this up without some of that background or at least seeing some of the 50 thousand references we made in the last uh, 25, 30 minutes. So that's where I'd land. Like you said, quick read, enjoyed it, you know, would definitely read something else. There are no political polemic essays at the end of it. There's no unveiling anti-Asian sentiment like in Good Asian. There's no military or war element or anything else or Vietnam or something else. It is literally self-contained. So not everything has to be a world changer. And uh, that's it. So anything else before we take a quick break, Steve-O? No, I think, uh, I think we're good to go. All right, Steve-O's done. I'm done. So that's it. We're closing the book on Write It in Blood. Snap, snap. And we'll be back and we'll run down uh, what we'll do next time on Bubbling Up. And we're back. Next week, we'll be revisiting a classic, the recently rebooted Saga. We'll be doing Volume 1 by Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples. And we'll have a special guest to share his love of the series and do some fun little discussions about it and give it the bubbling up treatment. So for myself, Mr. Joe Soria and Steve-O, I'm going to write it in blood. <laughs> I guess uh, we're going we're gonna to close the door on this and we will see you next week on Bubbling Up. Terrifying. Goodbye. Yeah, it's the same music as at the beginning. Our buddy Chris Morgan did it. The intro's so nice, we used it twice. What? You want show credits over here? Alright. I was your production manager, Steve Ramosi. Still am, I guess. And the other guy was the brains of the whole operation, Joe Soria. We want to thank you for tuning in, and we hope we see you on the next episode. Uh, Goodbye. Great timing.